This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, Kevin Randall. I'll be joined by my guest, Greg Lawson, in just a moment. Uh, before I do, I, before I get to him, I wanted to mention something of a coincidence. We're going to be talking about his book, which is Roswell, The After Action Report. But just yesterday, I was doing some research online and came across an article about Joe Briley. For those of you who are not deeply immersed in the minutiae of the Roswell case, Joe Briley was the operations officer in Roswell in July of 1947. He has a role in the retrieval operation. Uh, what got my ire up is a long posting I found about Joe Briley, where the writer of that post, I think his name was Patrick Gross, mentioned that uh, in 1947, Briley wasn't really a lieutenant colonel. He suspected he was only a lieutenant. I don't know where he got this idea. If you go online to do your research or follow up on your research, you would have found a page called Staff Officers from the 509th Bomb Group. And on that page is Lieutenant Colonel Joe Briley. He was a Lieutenant Colonel in 1947. I don't know why this guy speculated he was only a Lieutenant. Going down, and, and Greg Lawson and I will talk about this later, he gets into the Project Mogul nonsense perpetuating the myth that Mogul was this highly classified project in New Mexico that was so highly classified, even the guys involved in it didn't know the name of it, which turns out to be not true because they did know the name and what was going on in New Mexico wasn't classified at all. The purpose, the ultimate purpose of what they were doing was classified, but it had nothing to do with what they were doing with the balloon experience in New, in New Mexico. And I'm sure that we'll get into that. Uh, in just a few minutes, because as I said, Greg has a book and he de deals with some of this material as well. Um, I see here that Greg Lawson has spent much of his adult life exploring strange places, from the first Russian colony in Three Saints Bay, Alaska, to the pyramids of Egypt. He has explored the paranormal hotspots in over 40 countries. He is a career law enforcement officer with over 30 years experience and currently serves as a patrol lieutenant. Previously, he has worked as a hostage negotiator, SWAT officer, mental health investigator, academy instructor, and as a sex crimes and homicide detective. Greg is also a 10-year military veteran and has served as a paratrooper with the Army's 82nd Airborne Division, and I will say nothing rude about the Army's 82nd Airborne Division. As a Navy operations specialist aboard the USS Nimitz, which is kind of interesting, and as a Ranger Master with the US Air Force. He is a lifetime member of Veterans of Foreign Wars. Greg has a master's degree in education from Texas State University, where he studied complex adaptive human services. He also specializes in investigative procedures and teaches these skills to Texas law enforcement officers and paranormal investigators. He is an international lecturer and author of seven books, 
Three of them addressing the paranormal, how to be a paranormal detective, Diaries of a Paranormalist, and his latest book, Roswell After Action Report. Greg Lawson, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thank you, Kevin. It's a real honor to be on your show. Appreciate it. Did you say at some point or did I read somewhere that you had an involvement with Mineral Wells, Texas? Um, well, not a military involvement, but uh, I did do an investigation there of a place uh, called Haunted Hill House. Uh, and it was kind of disturbing a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that's about my only uh, um, connection to uh, Mineral Wells. I bring that up because, of course, the Army's primary helicopter school was at Fort Walters, Texas, which is right outside Mineral Wells. Right. And when I returned from Vietnam, I was stationed in Mineral Wells for 18 months, two years, something like that. So I'm familiar with the town. And the one thing I remember about it was a sign on one of the buildings that somebody spray painted on it says, please don't spit on the sidewalk and please was misspelled. And I thought, boy, if that doesn't sum up the <laughs> attitudes of these people, I don't know what will. Sorry, Mineral Wells. I had a great time while I was there. Just got stuck on that one. Yeah, Mineral Wells is a interesting place. Um, that, But that sums it up, kind of what you just said. Uh, and and the uh, Holiday Inn, which is no longer a Holiday Inn, I think it's a Best Western, there was a rotor blades erected there uh, on the pathway to the pool and said, through these portals past the greatest helicopter pilots in the world or something like that. Nice. And af after you solo, the, the, the bus would always stop at the um, uh, Holiday Inn, and those who had soloed that gig got thrown into the pool. <laughs> and on the day I solo, there was about we we outnumbered the actual people who hadn't soloed, so we were able to fight them off for a while, and a lot of people ended up in the pool. Wow! <laughs> but I digress. Now you know that uh, the the base over there is still kind of open to the public. I mean, it's it's not a base anymore. It's it's all been uh, farmed out to private industry and and probably government. But uh, it's still interesting to go over there and kind of drive around and and look at everything. Well, it had originally been an Air Force base, and I know this because the quarters that we had at uh, Walters when we were going through flight school were much nicer than most of the billets yeah. in the Army. But And when I came back from uh, Vietnam, I didn't have to live on base. I could live anywhere I wanted as long as I could get to work on time. So, Yeah. Um, Roswell, the After Action Report, what inspired you to do this? You know, uh, I'm obviously an idiot. To step off into this, um, you know, uh, my wife and I have been going up to uh, Roswell for a um, decade and a half or so, just going to the conferences and talking to different people up there. And um, I, I've always been really interested in it. I lived when I was five, six years old, I lived next door to an F4 pilot and uh and so you know, talking with him, he, he was gracious enough to talk to the five, six-year-old uh, when he would come home every once in a while. And, uh, and you know, we would talk about airplanes and, and uh, weather balloons and, and stuff like that. And because and, uh, we, we used to see a lot of these silver discs fly over my house. Um, I was in the, uh, I guess, the uh, flight pattern of um, um, Bergstrom Air Force Base, SAC Command at the time. And uh, so they would be launching uh, weather balloons all the time. And, and by the time they got to my house, they were at a very, very high altitude. So they had spread out and flattened out real nice. And uh, late in the day were great reflectors and, and looked really cool up there. Um, so as a young kid, I, I was interested in it. But just just going to Roswell and, and talking to the different people, meeting a lot of the different people, um, you know, I had 
always been interested in in UFOs. I've always been interested in sci-fi. I've always uh, kind of had an affinity to that. And uh, I kept up with the uh, the Roswell situation um, from a disc- distance from the late 80, 80s, early 90s, maybe. Uh, and then read the the report when it came out, maybe a year after it came out. And um, I wasn't as diligent back then when I read the report, but I, I got well, a report. You're re- talk, talking about the Air Force report, uh, the, the the big thick Roswell book right. that uh, Colonel Weaver and Lieutenant McAndrews put together. Yeah, fact versus fiction, right? <laughs> yes. So, I uh, you know I kind of looked at that, and I I didn't really put it all together until after I'd been a, a cop for a while, and worked um, uh, major crimes and and interviewed pretty nest pretty pretty awful people and uh and went to a lot of different uh classes on how to not only just have a conversation with somebody but to glean information out of them that they don't want to give you and uh so with my background in the military and uh, my background in in law enforcement i you know i decided to, to read this thing again and um uh colonel weaver's report itself you know, the, what is it, the 22-page, 17-page, something like that? It's, it's the, not the, executive, the executive summary, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, You know, that that's put together just fine uh, for what their intent was. Well, let me interrupt here because I do have sure. a question. Did you read the entire report? <laughs> so I would lie to you if I said I read everything, but I read a whole lot of it. I, I've had this stuff on my bedside table for about, seven years or or maybe even closer to 10 years. My wife was like, you need to write the damn report, write the, the, write the book and get this stuff off of your bedside table. And I couldn't disagree with her. You know, Uh, what's funny is a lot of people have uh, criticized me by, by calling this an after action report. Well, obviously it's not an after action report. It's my after action report. Um, it's, it's a, uh, a review and summary of kind of a, a general idea of what some people think happened, uh, and involving what some people feel were involved. And, uh, my real expertise is, is looking for what matters. Well, let me, an after action report in the military, we write those after you were involved in some kind of an action, whether it was a, a combat related or some other action, uh, an exercise or whatever, we put together an after action report. And I suppose that's the same way with the police. It is. Um, not all police agencies do that, but the, the ones that do it are, are pretty um, cutting edge and they uh, they stay on top of their training, primarily after action reports in the military, in the uh, in law enforcement uh, have to do with training. We do regular, you know, debriefings and we have notes from the debriefings of uh, missions, but really ad- addressing the lessons learned and uh, and correcting those sorts of things are typically more along the lines of a, a training exercise. So you've decided to Oh, your wife decided for you. <laughs> That's right. That you should put this down on paper. Right. And the, and the book is, of course, Roswell, the After Action Report. And I see you start with um, Colonel DuBose, later Brigadier General DuBose, retired, uh, as he being a critical witness to, I guess, um, the cover-up aspects of this. I believe he is by looking at the way everything was um, everything transpired. 
he was kind of a, a middleman between a, a, a lot of different things that were moving. And so he got to see a lot of different things that were moving and, and would recognize, you know, who's pushing the buttons and who's not the, the real stark thing that, that just uh, slaps me in the face is the way that the air force completely, um, eliminates him from any of it. You know, I mean, there's nothing uh, substantial written in the uh, the Roswell report, the 94 report that the Air Force put out, uh, giving him a- any kind of credence whatsoever when um, he obviously was there. He was in the photographs. And on top of that, um, you know, he did a, I'm using air quotes, uh, a deathbed confession of this was a cover-up. It was a conspiracy. And the, the funny thing is, is, you know, you watch some of the um, uh, the YouTube videos of some of the Air Force officers that were involved in the investigation and how they smirk and say, yeah, and they're, and they're still calling this a cover-up. They're still calling it a, you know, a conspiracy. It's like, yeah, well, it, it was, sir. <laughs> it, it absolutely was. Well, uh, and and maybe, for, maybe for good reason. Wasn't you know, the problem that the, Bo- the Bows had passed away before they began their investigation? Sure. And it's hard to interview a guy that uh, <laughs> that has passed away. But well, uh, as a you, paranormal investigator, I bet you could think of ways that they could have done. <laughs> uh, Sorry, is, I didn't mean to go there. No, no, no. That's that's quite all right. Uh, that That's uh, yeah, you could, uh, you know, after you exhaust everything else, all reasonable uh, means to uh, gather information, you know, you can always reach out to the folks that. Uh, uh, that profess uh, having that that communication from beyond. Uh, well, let me, and, let, me and, let me bring up a point here. I am probably the only person that ever interviewed Ed, Edwin Easley. He was the provost marshal at Roswell in 1947. And for all of you people out there, provost marshal in this case, marshal is spelled with one L, not two. Get it right. I'm tired of seeing marshal spelled with two Ls when they're referring to provost marshals and Wyatt Earp and everything else. Anyway. Um, my point simply is I offered the taped interviews with um, Easley to, I guess, McAndrew, because he called me several times. And they never wanted to hear what he had to say about the, the events. And, and that kind of spoke to me about the validity of what they were doing, that they, they had a specific mission and they were going to follow up on that. And before you respond to that, keep that thought in your mind. I see on the clock on the wall, I'm going to have to take a break. I am here with Greg Lawson. We are distancingly separated, distance, social distancing. Yes because everybody has to for some bizarre reason i don't understand but that's neither here nor there when we went away i was attempting to give you the website which is www.theparanormaldetective.com and the the paranormal detective is all one word all lowercase.com and and you type greg larson into your search engine you can get to it as well his book is roswell the after action report my blog is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and i mentioned this which i should have done in the first segment because i have a longer posting about joe briley and the information that was put posted uh, by someone else uh, about that for y'all to take a look at when uh, 
the mood moves you or you want to dive deep into the minutia of Roswell. Uh, when we went away, I had mentioned that I had um, and probably am the only person who interviewed Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal at the time in Roswell, 1947. He was responsible for security on the base. He had two organizations. One dealt with security on the base and the other with, dealt with the military police that patrolled the town and that sort of thing for the, for the for the military. So he was deeply involved in this sort of thing. And I offered to get copies of those tapes to McAndrew and they just never wanted to hear them, which I thought uh, Edwin Easley would have been a, a wonderful source for them because he says to me multiple times that when I would ask him specific questions about what was picked up and what was seen, he says, well, I can't talk about that. I was sworn to secrecy. Um, you bring DuBose in as someone who is now in Fort Worth, was not involved in the activities in Roswell, but was sort of involved in the overseeing of the entire thing. And he's involved in Fort Worth and you, you give him a major role. I do. Um, and, and so everything I need to know about an investigation uh, that a, a law enforcement officer or an official is conducting is who he excludes from that investigation. When you purposely exclude people from the investigation that would have germane information or credible information uh, about that and you completely exclude them, I completely understand two things are happening. One of two things. You're either incompetent or you're doing this by design. And I, so I, I spent two years in the United States uh, Air Force. I was uh, in security forces. I was a combat arms training and maintenance instructor. I, I taught uh, small arms fire to everybody, right? I was a range master. And I, being a range master, I was involved in a little bit of uh, what the security forces were doing as far as on the law enforcement side and I understand uh, the OSI's role in a lot of the larger investigations. And w when I see something like this, I don't want to throw out incompetence because I don't believe they are. But I do believe that they take orders or they already have something, you know, uh, uh, affixed in their brain of, of what the investigation is and how do we need to get to that conclusion. And that's one of the big mistakes that a lot of law enforcement officers, a lot of investigators make is they see a situation, they come up with a conclusion immediately and then build their investigation to fit their paradigm, their idea of it. Um, and that's something that Weaver started immediately. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether you know this. Well, you probably do know this. Uh, uh, backstory Roswell. Weaver wrote a book in uh, 2020. That was that came out in 2020. Yes, uh, I've had Colonel Weaver on the program. I know Colonel Weaver. He and I have had telephone conversations and uh, communications for many years. Yeah, I I would not have wanted his responsibility in this thing, but he does say something that's that tells me everything. In, in his new book, he says, clearly we had to do better than a snarky but true response in order to answer the congressman's request, however goofy it was. Wow, that's the guy I want in charge of my investigation. He's already, he's already discredited anything that he's going to come up with. He's already figured it out. He knows uh, what this is all about, and, and it doesn't have anything to do with spaceships or anything else. Uh, but it was essentially, it, he came across as basically everybody's wasting our time. 
Well, I didn't get the sense that he he thought that. I got the sense that he knew what his orders were. Uh, well, in that, that and that's could, a, and that's yeah. a whole different kettle of fish. It is, and you know, and, and you can go down that line um, of you know, if you are in charge of an investigative unit, you're probably understaffed, uh, undermanned, and you're behind on everything that you're doing. Um, it's one of those things, if, you, if you're thinking that this is just some goofy request and we just need to get it off our plate, are you going to assign your best investigators to it? But um, he had access. He had access to an awful lot of resources that a police department wouldn't have. And if you read through this massive report, which you <laughs> have done sort of, sort of, you find that um, various people conducted investigations, parts of the investigations, or conducted the interviews. McAndrew, I think, was involved in quite a bit of it, right. but he was usually paired up with a, a senior officer in some respect. Right, Colonel Butler and some of the other guys. And 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 you and if you go through the um, in, interview that Weaver conducted with Sheridan Cabot, he being the counterintelligence guy that went with Marcel out to the crash site, there was one point in there that just struck me was when. Um, Weaver asked if uh, what what his what Cabot's um, thoughts were when he first got to the debris field, and he said he recognized it as a balloon immediately. Right. And I'm thinking the next question should have been, did you communicate this rather important piece of intelligence to Major Marcel and Colonel Blanchard? And why well, that, not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hey, uh, there's so many answers that were given in the different uh, interviews that never derailed their line of questioning. Um, you know, there, there's that one part I, I, I kicked that around a little bit as far as Mary Cabot, uh, Sheridan Cabot's wife. She's sitting there with him uh, during this interview and she's she's chiming in from time to time. By, by the way, just just to interrupt you, when when we interviewed Cabot, and I say we, Don Schmidt and I interviewed Cabot, Mary Cabot was there and she chimed in periodically. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing about it is, is is later they they're talking to uh, Professor Moore, and they talk about when Jesse Marcel had that piece, still had that piece, and they were over there at a barbecue and they tried to burn it, it wouldn't burn. Well, I look back at the the transcript again, and I'm looking at the transcript, and I'm trying to find that, and I'm like, I can't find that. So, once again, in his transcripts, it's interesting, you know, a transcript is everything that is said in that conversation from beginning to end. You don't edit a transcript. You, if you edit a transcript, it turns into a statement. And um, that's something that really kind of bothered me is, you know, we don't have any or I don't have any audio recordings of any of this to to be able to compare whether they actually audited the transcripts, but the, it, 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 it's apparent to me that they did. Well, I thought in, in, in reading what um, Weaver, or what's in the in the report, I won't blame Weaver for that, uh, the, the whole thing, and, and my conversations with Cavett, where he knowingly lied to us, Right. Because it's the very first thing he said to us, he hadn't been there. He wasn't involved. They were no. they were too busy to go out and chase balloons. And then when Weaver shows up, he says, well, yeah, I was out there with Marcel, or maybe not Marcel, but Rickett was with me. Rickett being his NCO for those who are, are keeping up with minutiae here. But the, but the point simply is, um, his statements 
change over time, but in, in reading the statement he gave to Weaver, it was my impression that there had been a long conversation prior before they turned on the tape. Absolutely. So they kind of agreed on what yep. would be said for the tape. Yep, that's that's uh, after seeing so many of these, there, there's something that, uh, um, you know, people uh, might look at me and go, why, why in the world are you chiming in on this? Um, my expertise is in uh, investigations as far as uh, conducting them and training people with them. I have a lot of uh, training hours uh, that I've taken with them, thousands of hours. And watching interviews is one of the things that we do. Um, the, in, in law enforcement, they used to go, okay, you're the bad guy. You're going to be the cop. You guys interview each other about a burglary. That's not how we do it anymore. We use case studies. We sit and watch interviews and key in on specific things that people do. Um, one of those things is, is that when you're trying to be professional and uh, you, you build your credibility, some people just can't help but taking a shot at somebody like saying what Weaver said, however goofy it was. How about just conduct an investigation? Don't do character assassination on anybody. Let's just move forward and conduct the investigation. Uh, and that's what I look at when I look at uh, an interview uh, is how is this person responding to this? Not just body language, but uh, also inflection, um, you know, whether they're asking questions back. And, and it, it was really frustrating to, to sit and, and uh, read that transcript knowing that, wow, this thing's edited for sure. But um, well, Sure, it's edited. I was kind of fumbling for a word there. It's edited, but I think that they also had kind of pre-planned what they were going to say. It was, I think scripted would be the word I would scripted. use. Scripted. Yeah, it was not only, it was not only, uh, it, it was scripted and it was edited. Right. So that you got well, where you wanted to go. And that was the thing that bothered me about the report. And, and, and you've mentioned that was the fact that we don't have Edwin Easley. We don't have Thomas DuBose. We don't have... Jesse Marcel, although Jesse Marcel, I, I fear, is 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 badly compromised. And yeah. I, I say that because I just read the Bob Pratt interview with him that uh, was the first, I think, in for long, long form interview that uh, Marcel gave. And there's just all kinds of problems with there that I hadn't looked at and hadn't understood before. Uh, when I had I'll mention this because I think you'll find it interesting. When I had Weaver on the program. We were talking about the claim that Jesse Marcel shot down five enemy airplanes as a as a crewman. Right. Weaver said that the Air Force kept records of that. And that not only did they keep it for fighter pilots, but they kept it for crewmen who in bombers who shot down airplanes. And one of them, one of the guys had shot down 17 enemy airplanes, which is, is incredible. But Jesse Marcel's name didn't show up anywhere. Yeah. And then you have to wonder, where did this idea come from that, that Jesse Marcel had shot down five enemy airplanes, other than Marcel bringing up of himself? And, and so I look at all of that sort of thing as well as saying that, you know, this is this is harming the overall uh, feel of the case. And I know you talk about Jesse Marcel there. You didn't have an opportunity to interview him. I didn't have the opportunity to interview him. What did you come up with Jesse Marcel? And, and I'm going to have to take a break here in just, just a minute and a half or so. So, okay. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I I sit and look at, at at Jesse Marcel. I think he had a a good career, uh, although it was short. Uh, I believe that um, 
he was a genuine guy. I believe he did his best. Um, people tout that, uh, you know, the best of the best were at the 509th, and that's not true. <laughs> it was it was a unit just like every other unit. There may have been uh, uh, several people that were hand-selected, but for the most part, if there's a billet open and there's a couple officers over here available, they threw the officer over there, and that's what happened. Um, I, I think I think one point I want to make here is uh, in looking at the military police aspect of it, and a complaint that Edwin Easley had was, and they read it in the unit history, that his people, he would get people in, they get them trained up, and then they would be transferred elsewhere, and they became the trainers for dealing with the atomic weapons. Train so, the trainer. Yep. So, yeah, train the trainer type thing, yep. so that you had that sort of thing going on. Uh, but I want to, I, I assume you've you've read the Pratt interview with, with Marcel. I have. In both the, in both the sanitized version that uh, Carl Flock put together and the, the regular version that I've actually put on my blog. Uh, so you can kind of compare those two as, as well. And we'll get back to that in just a moment because I'm going to have to take my break now. Um, the book is Roswell, the After Action Report. My book is, of course, Roswell in the 21st Century. The website is www.theparanormaldetective.com. Mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And if you take a look at that, some of the stuff about Joe Bradley, some of the things we're talking about here, uh, I just posted um, today so that you'll get a good look at or a good feel for some of what we're looking at and how we're discussing it. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. Greg Larson, we're talking about Roswell. When, when we went away, I posed kind of a, I'm thinking of kind of a snarky question about Marcel, and I didn't mean it for it to come out snarky, but reviewing it in my head afterwards, I, I'm not real happy with the way I asked it. Um, <laughs> Jesse Marcel had conducted an interview with Bob Pratt. Um, you had access to that interview? Yeah, there's there's definitely some questions. Uh, when, when somebody in the military um, talks about something that they did, um, typically in your military records or someplace, it's going to be recorded that you were either there and what action you took and that sort of thing. Um, and when you say that, and if you, uh, are deceptive, uh, about what you're saying, um, that can definitely come back to bite you for sure. Well, let me, I know that when you're in waiting for schools to begin, and Marcel was waiting for schools to begin in early World War II, that you're often put into slots temporarily. And there may, may just, yeah. the record may just reflect you were in sort of a casual status. I think the status is what they, what they called it. Yep. So when Jesse Marcel that he says that he had been an aide to General Hap Arnold for a period of time, and it's not reflected in his record, I'm not bothered by that, given the time frame and where he was and what he was doing. I can imagine that they would have brought in somebody, well, here's this officer, use him as you need until he's ready to go to school. I have no problem with that. But as you say, when uh, in other aspects of it, your schooling is all recorded, regardless of the schooling. 
Um, if you've awarded, been awarded decorations, that's recorded. You can find that. I know for a long time, my record didn't reflect the precise number of awards. And, and I mentioned this only because um, Jesse Marcel said he had five air medals. And I wasn't impressed with that because as a helicopter in Vietnam, I, I earned 41 air medals. And I'm not even close to being close to the top. I think the top guy had 125 air medals. And we got wow. them for every 25 hours of combat assault flight time and 50 hours of combat support flight time. So if you spent 1,200 hours in Vietnam flying around, you had a sack full of air medals. But I could only find records for his, for two air medals. Um, and and that, was, that was worrisome. And I don't know why you would claim five when you had two uh, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I. Whenever um, something to look at um, is, is my father was uh, in World War II. Uh, his uh, records were part of those records that when they had the big fire there in St. Louis, had uh, burned up all his records. So for me to go back in and be able to find where he received his training, because he he went to flight school, uh, and I don't know whether he got no, injured. No, well, Jesse, Jesse Senior did not go to flight school. No, 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 no. I'm talking Jesse about my Jr. father. Jesse Jr. went to flight school, and he took yeah. the flight surgeon's course, which got him up through soloing, soloing and that was about it. But Jesse Mar Sr. was not a rated, uh, rated officer, which means he did not have a flying assignment. Right. No, I was, I was speaking about my father. My, my oh, I'm father. sorry. No, that's all right. Um, he, my father's records were part of that group of records that burned. And I know that he went to flight school. Uh, he either failed out of flight school or he got injured. And I think he was injured because he was writing letters from a hospital. So I'm putting together, you know, not currently, but I did put together, uh, kind of my dad's, uh, military history using, um, uh, letters and postcards and and those sorts of things uh you can go back when you're conducting an investigation and use those things to kind of put the the pieces together but definitely um like if you're temporary assigned duty someplace tad for uh two months three months waiting for a school or waiting for an assignment or waiting to be transferred somewhere most likely that's not going to be uh recorded anywhere uh, I spent uh, time in the Sinai Desert with the multinational force and observers. I went to uh, Chad and Sudan while I was there. Nowhere in my record does it say that. I have pictures. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was me in the pictures. But nowhere in my record does it say that. So there are things that happen. And the big key thing is is, is me for a as a local law enforcement official, as a person that conducts criminal investigations up to, you know, capital murder, um, one of the things that we have to not as a luxury is time. So let's say as a, as a child abuse detective on Monday, I get three cases, I uh, start working on one of them and I'm coordinating multiple interviews with the children, with the, 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 uh, first adult that was, uh, aware of this action happening. I'm making, uh, scheduling, uh, uh medical interviews and, and, and all those things. And on Tuesday, I get three more cases. And on Wednesday, I get three more cases. So we have to concentrate specifically on the things that really matter uh, and, and glean out the germane information that is going to lead to probable cause and then a grand jury indictment. Uh, 
But this is uh, really more of a cold case investigation. It is where, a cold, absolutely. Where we have the documentation and we have the time to go back and we have the time to search out the records. And for those interested, yes, Jesse Marcel's records survived the fire in St. Louis. And I have the complete 201 file. Oh, wow. So I can, I can look at where he was, what he was doing, and when he was doing. Yes, he served in the South Pacific. Yes, he received two air medals for participating in aerial flight. And as I read that phrase over and over again, it always laughs at, I always have to laugh at it because there's another kind besides aerial flight. Uh, he, was re- he received the Bronze Star Medal for his work in training and getting people up to speed when they arrived in the South Pacific uh, so they could go out on the missions. Yes, he flew apparently combat missions and had 468 hours of combat flight time. So all of that is in the record. So clearly he had a uh, distinguished a career, career during World War II, and he was thought of thought highly enough to end up at the Roswell Army Airfield as the Air Intelligence Officer. So right. we can look yeah. at all of that and say, yes, that is all good. Does this other stuff that we've come up with negate what he said about recovering the um, flying saucer? And, and that's the problem with um, when you start going down the, the road of uh, deception is at what point do you discredit the person completely and just eliminate them altogether, uh, you know, because uh, a, a person can be a person can tell a lie, but not be necessarily a liar. You know, it can be a, a little white lie, something uh, socially acceptable. You know, do it. Do these genes make me look fat? Oh, no, of course not. Well, the other um, the other thing we should point out is if you repeat a lie, somebody's told you and you do not know it's a lie. You're not lying. The person lied to you. You're. Uh, uh, providing the uh, the information as if it's authentic because that's exactly. what you believe. Yeah. I, I've sat in an interview room for hours with an individual and he was giving me every cue of deception. He was giving me verbal cues. He was giving me eye cues. He was giving me body language. Uh, he was uh, manipulating the conversation. He would, I would say, so were you at this location? And he would say, uh, at that location? Yeah. Were you on 6th Street? Was I on 6th Street? Well, I know what you're doing. You're buying time to create uh, the answer that you're going to look for that's going to eliminate you from any culpability of the crime. The interesting thing about this particular case, I was sitting there and everything this guy was telling me, it was just telling me my all of my training, intuition, everything, this guy's lying. Well, he wasn't lying about murdering this person. He was lying to me to cover up the weed that was in his car in my parking lot, you know, in the law enforcement parking lot. He had a bunch of weed in there and he didn't want uh, any connection to his car to come up in the conversation. So he was doing everything he could to circle around. The guy was completely innocent of the murder and didn't have anything to do with it. And that's one of those things when you're, when you're conducting an investigation it gets really confusing when somebody is being deceptive, are they being deceptive, uh, you know, as an, omission kind of thing or a commission kind of thing? Are they they trying to say that they didn't have anything to do with something or that they did have to do with something? And it gets into a really, really difficult uh, situation to, to make that call like what you're talking about because Jesse Marcel uh, was, uh, because investigators discovered Jesse Marcel was being untruthful or deceptive in some of his answers, does that negate all of his testimony? 
And I say it doesn't. Well, I, I agree with you. I think especially because if he was standalone, he was the only one talking about this, then we could eliminate the whole thing. But we have a whole host of other witnesses who participated in the activity. Right. So so we know that what he said about that activity was pretty much his um, observations. I've let this get beyond where I wanted to go. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, what I'm saying is uh, I wanted to get to Project Mogul because I know you've, you've done some work on Project Mogul. And well, I know you and the Air Force want to get to that Project Mogul. Um, Project Mogul, answer the uh, question of what fell at Roswell. Oh, man. Um, You you know, there is that possibility. Uh, It would make the most sense in a conventional way. Um, I I have real issues with the uh, initial uh, reporting of the material. And, um, and, And then all of a sudden it turns into a a weather balloon. Uh, I, I have issue with that. And I have issue with uh, uh, the way that the Air Force says, you know, there wasn't, this is ridiculous, it, there wasn't more than one crash site, and then turn right back around and then another transcript say, you know, well, this is probably just one crash site, and there's, there's probably other sites that uh, may not have anything to do with this. Um, I, conventionally, you know, if you're just sitting there, uh, reading this, yeah, that that makes complete sense. Uh, let's go get lunch, you know. But in, in the Air Force report, and this is where I think Weaver did us a favor. He gathered all the information from Dr. Albert Crary's research in New Mexico. Dr. Crary being the leader of Project Mogul, was almost said Project Blue, but Project Mogul. I'm glad you said that because I I didn't know how to pronounce his name. And 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 the thing is, in his field notes, in his field diary, and in the type transcripts of those notes, it says flight number four, which is the culprit, supposedly fell on the Brazel Ranch, right. Foster Ranch, was canceled. Well, if it was canceled, then it couldn't have left debris. Right. And and that's that's a struggle that I've had because so. When you're in an internal affairs investigation, they bring you in the office, they sit you down, you had been warned that you're an internal affairs investigation weeks, possibly months before you actually get the interview with internal affairs. You sit down and they slam down uh, three or four three ring binders that are four inches thick with piles uh, and reams of paper. And they bang it all on the desk. They get this big pile in front of you and they say, we've conducted our investigation. You need to tell us the truth. <laughs> and you're sitting there going, well, they've been looking at this for four months. Look at all this material. And that's what that's what the Roswell report reminds me of. There's probably, uh, you know, 15, 20 pages that matter in that thousand page report or nearly thousand page report. Uh, and I'm just sitting there looking at this going, this is all fluff. It's all gibberish. It's all, you know. But there are uh, no, there are important nuggets in there. For example. There are. Sure. We are told that Project Mogul was so highly classified, the guys in Alamogordo, the guys running Project Mogul, right. the New York Balloon Project in, in New Mexico, didn't even know the name. And yet in Crary's diary, the name Mogul surfaced at least three times. Yeah. So he clearly knew the name. Well, and that that's my whole issue with the way that they conducted this investigation, the way that they documented or didn't document, however you look at it, uh, their process uh, and then the evidence that they gathered uh, and how they, uh, um, you know, they manipulated all of it, 
all the transcripts, all the statements, everything. They manipulated it to mogul. And every time something would pop up that would take you down a rabbit trail someplace else, they would just completely ignore it and just stay on track. Uh, and that's the most frustrating thing. What? Okay, you have let me, a... Let, 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 yeah. Let's do this. Let you collect your thought on your question okay. here. Because I have to take a break, and it's a good sure. excuse here. Uh, your book is Roswell, The After Action Report. How can they get a hold of your book quickly? They can get it on uh, my website, theparanormaldetective.com, or on Amazon. Okay. And the website is theparanormaldetective.com. We will be back right after this, so please stick around. today on a different perspective we've been talking about things roswell and things mogul before i get back to that i wanted to mention there are some other fine programs on the exome broadcast network at xzbn.net take a look at the uh, website and i'm sure you're going to find some things in the paranormal or ufos that will be of interest to you when we went away i had um or you were going to talk a little bit about some of the confusion in the mogul uh, transcripts and things like that, and, and sure. I kind of cut you off for the break. I, so pick it up at that point. Okay. Uh, yeah. When you're when you're looking at the transcripts, you're you're looking at the uh, the statements. Uh, the thing that throws me off a lot is the Air Force had a responsibility to do their due diligence in this investigation. They were answering uh, the inquiry, you know, of a congressman, and also. They already knew what they were stepping off into. This was a very, very hotly debated, uh, you know, uh, topic. So they they had a responsibility to do this in in the best uh, of their way. And so this is one thing you don't do in law enforcement. If I have a suspect and that suspect uh, is uh, uh, is charged or or assumed that he killed his wife, I don't tell him to do the investigation. And that's the craziest part about this whole thing is the Air Force investigated themselves. That right there negates everything that's in that investigation for the simple fact that there was no, you know, where's Dr. Hynek? Where, where was some somebody there that would sit and do the oversight uh, in law enforcement in Texas if a small agency uh, has a shooting or whatever and they end up hurting somebody or uh, they have some sort of internal affairs kind of thing. They're going to, if it's important enough, they're going to ask a Texas Ranger to come in here and oversee it. He's going to watch over everything that's being done and make sure that it's, it's being done correct, correctly. But, but the problem, the problem here is we're not dealing with law enforcement. We're dealing with a military organization and their investigative procedures are different than those. And national security becomes a factor in dealing with this stuff where in most law enforcement scenarios you wouldn't have a national security aspect right that you would have a uh, a control aspect on information being leaked out as far as for the case because you wouldn't want to contaminate the jury pool 
And there's certain things in the case that you want to keep hidden from everybody else. And, and I understand that part of it. However, to just to say, hey, Air Force, we have a problem with something that you did. It seemed like it was pretty deceptive. Hey, can you uh, say that it wasn't? <laughs> and then they go in and they just do it. There, there has to be some sort of checks and balances in this investigation. And there was not. There was not any checks and balances in this. They just had their idea of what they wanted and they rolled with it. Did do you are you open to the possibility that they had their orders to find specifically what they were supposed to find and they followed that order as best they could? Is because it becomes if if Roswell was an alien spacecraft and we can figure out the way it worked, we move ahead of our competitors in the world. And so they have an obligation to keep that information from falling into the hands of our competitors. Yes, absolutely. And there's certain things that people say during an interview that will give away their position. Um, and sometimes it's because of just their personality and they can't help but not say it. But also sometimes it's just they're not watching what they're saying. During the uh, Tchaikovsky interview, uh, the Air Force says, when what we're trying to do is to make sure that we are open to the general accounting office. How about not try? How about you just be open? Um, and it, I know that sounds uh, really nitpicky and kind of silly. Well, I assure you it's not. I can, <laughs> I can show plenty of interviews of individuals saying things like that because subconsciously they're letting these things slip out because they know they're not being truthful. And I, I would, uh, I would plant my flag on several of the things that they said during their, uh, um, I'm, I'm not even going to say their questioning, their, their conversation that they had with their interviewers, um, which was just, it, they were doing a dissertation. They would tell them what they thought and then, you know, can get the, get the interviewee to confirm what they just said. Well, um, Trukowski, who was a, um, member, a leader, uh, uh, involved with Project Mogul, and I say that so that the audience can keep up with us here. He's, he's in Ohio at the time. The events are going on in New Mexico. There's no reason for them to communicate the, the recovery of a spacecraft to him at all. Right. And so when he learns that there's something going on down there, he's told something going down there, and it revolves around Project Mogul and his activities there, um, He's probably telling the truth as best he can, and he knows he knows there may be something else going on, but there's nothing more for for him to tell because he doesn't know anything more. He would have no reason to be brought into it. Right, but to have the Air Force uh, investigator say what we're trying to do is make sure, or we're trying to be as open as possible, that tells me that there are things that you're not being open with. It's not like saying, oh, well, let me... Uh, uh, you, you, let me tell you the truth. Let, let me tell you what's really going on. Here. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Uh, but, but before you weren't point, telling me the truth. My, my point here is we're dealing with something that kind of transcends the events in Roswell. Sure. Because there's a national security aspect of it. Whether it's mogul or not, there's a national security aspect to it. Yes. And, and, I, and think, I, I don't doubt that at all. And I think that's the reason that we had some of the fancy footwork is they don't want to lead 
it into an arena that they don't want explored. And so they direct it away from it, whether it mogul was the answer or not. So, and in today's, today's environment, I don't know why anybody would care that we were trying to launch balloons to sp spy on the Soviet Union because we didn't do that, meaning right. launch the balloons to spy on them. We did spy, of course. And the Soviet Union no longer exists. Yes. So you, you, you have the ultimate question, right? Why in the world would they continue to be deceptive when there's nothing on the books that I can imagine um, that would require uh, this to remain classified for 70 plus years? Uh, unless, there, there's, unless, go ahead. <laughs> well, unless it's, it's something extraterrestrial. That's right. But I was going to say, do we want to get to the extraterrestrial that way? Say, well, we find nothing else terrestrially based that would explain what happened in Roswell. Therefore, it must be extraterrestrial. Do we want to take that step? I don't. I, I want to, you know, because I want an alien to run around here. I got my fingers crossed. Um, but, uh, you know, the responsible guy that's sitting here trying to write a, a, a book that has something new. Uh, I mean, what do you how can you write something new about Roswell unless uh, you come up with some sort of new technique or, or technology that you can uh, evaluate this with? But I'm, I'm completely on board with you. Just because it's not one thing doesn't mean it's a spaceship and with aliens. And I would say that if the Air Force had a plausible explanation other than Mogul, that they would have trotted it out at the time. I mean, right. they would have trotted it out now because that would have ended the discussion. They say, well, yeah, we said it was a weather balloon. We said it was Mogul, but here's what it really was. And we look at the records and say, yeah, that's really what it was. Yeah. And we're done. We're done with Roswell and UFOs have taken a major hit. But where we are today is Mogul doesn't work because the flight was canceled. and The documentation re reflects that. And if you read the, the damn Air Force report, you realize <laughs> that. You it's hard to read. You know, you know that thing's hard to read, man. I, I got into the uh, all the mogul stuff, and I'm like, I am not going to read all of these, you know, pressures and and you know. But but dead, there were so. but there were important things in there. For yes. example, the FAA required well, it was the CAA at the time required notams before they launched the balloons. They had to notify all the air airfields right. around that these things were going to be launched, which makes and complete so sense, say, right? Yes, and when they say, well, it was so highly classified, nobody was knowing, go, knew what was going on, the answer is, no, it wasn't because you guys were announcing it to the world. That's right. And so those little nuggets are in there that, that allows us to reject Mogul as an explanation, and now we have no explanation. The Air Force itself admits there's no explanation other than Mogul, so if Mogul is gone, then what do you have? Yeah, I... You, it, it continues to be the mystery that it is because to, to simply say, eh, yeah, this is it. Uh, let's move on. Uh, and then to start throwing all this other uh, ridiculousness in there, it's, it's, they were disingenuous to begin with, in my opinion. The, I would the, like to say one, one thing in defense of, of Colonel Weaver, because he's responsible for Curry's diary being in that document as well, which gives us some of that and some of the other documentation that was was um, recovered provides us with an opportunity to look at this from their perspective and see where they were going and what they were doing and what they were finding that is not kind of clouded over by the rhetoric that goes on 
around everything else. We can see what Crary had to say about flight number four. We can we know what a cluster of balloons looked like. We know what the regulations were they operated under, and right. they were violating the regulations if they launched it at night, as Moore later suggested they did. And the interesting thing there is Moore said, well, we launched it at two or three o'clock in the morning. They can't launch at night because that's against regulations. And they canceled the flight at six o'clock in the morning because of clouds. Well, how can they cancel a flight that's already been launched? Well, in, in when they had their discussion with, with Moore, they, they more or less briefed him on what was going on. And then when, you know, when they did ask questions, he said, you know, I need to qualify. You guys need to qualify everything with my, you know, memory of 50 years or so, the very next sentence was a 97 word, five point statement consisting uh, of five combined questions. That's, that is either incompetence or by design, right? Because the guy just said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm an older man. You need to slow down here a little bit. Um, you know, and, and I need to think about this. And then they give him a complex question it's insane the way that they, they did it. And if, if, if this was part of my team and we had a uh, investigator that, that conducted uh, interviews like that with witnesses, um, yeah, I'd send him to retraining, man. <laughs> Just don't do it that way. Well, you know what's happened here? We've run out of time, which is very, very unfortunate because I've been enjoying the conversation. I hope the audience is too. Uh, <laughs> trying to keep it away from the minutia of, of the Roswell case and provide kind, some kind of a perspective of what's going on. want to thank you for taking your time to be on the program, and we'll have to do it again. It was a real honor. I was, it was great talking with you. I appreciate that. Once again, the book is Roswell, The After Action Report. You can get it at uh, Amazon uh, or at the website, which is www.theparanormaldetective.com. The Paranormal Detective is all one word. The, the guest is Greg Lawson. I think you can type his name in the search engine and you can come up with that as well. Thank you so much, uh, Greg. Appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Next week, as promised several weeks ago, I'm going to try to talk with Stan Gordon about the Kecksburg UFO crash. We had on... Uh, Bob Young, who suggested it was meteoric in its, um, the answer is it was meteoric. It was a meteor of some kind. Uh, uh, Stan Gordon has investigated the case for literally since it uh, crashed in December of 1965 and get his perspective on this and what uh, Bob Young may have gotten wrong or maybe question Stan on some of the things he might have done differently or what the information is about the Kecksburg UFO crash. And the following week, I'm going to have on Dr. Peter Strasberg, who's written a book about Einstein being in Roswell. And I found that kind of fascinating, and I've been able to get in touch with him. And he will be on November 17th to talk about uh, his book, why he believes Einstein was in Roswell, and how it all fits into the overall picture that we've kind of drawn over these many years of doing a different perspective about what uh, fell at Roswell. My latest book is the best of Project Blue book. Or actually, it's the, I'm sorry, the, the latest book is, of course, UFOs in the Deep State. And I think it provides an answer as to why this cover-up, why this uh, secrecy persists until today. And I think that uh, it provides uh, some good answers for that and how all of that came to be. The uh, book prior to that was the Best of Project Blue Book. It looks at some of the better cases that didn't get a lot of um, uh, publicity when they happened. 
So I will be back, and I normally say in 167 hours, but we've got uh, daylight saving time ending, so I'll be back in 168 hours with more information about the paranormal, about UFOs, and things that go bump in the night. Thank you for listening. <laughs>